River. You are tuned in to CJMP News. It's 12 p.m. on Friday, November 18th, and we've got a full hour for you today. We sure do. We speak with Eve Engler. He's been described as Canada's Noam Chomsky and puts a critical eye on Canadian foreign policy. He'll be speaking at the Cranberry Senior Centre Friday evening, which is tonight if you're listening to us now. And then we have an expert on Louis Riel, Dave Doyle, who will be here live in the studio to fill us in on the city's proclamation to make November 16th Louis Riel Day here in Paul River. He'll be followed by the organizer of the Kinder Morgan Pipeline protest, who will talk about the nationwide vigil coming up this weekend. All this and more on CJMP News. Today's show was hosted by Carrie Swigum and me, Peter Harvey. Hi, Peter, and thanks. And hi, Paul River, again. Hi, Carrie. Hi. <laughs> hi, Yanni, who's here on the soundboard, too. Hello, hello. Hi, Yanni. And now for today's top news for Friday, September, excuse me, November 18th. PRSC Land Developments received disappointing news this week regarding a potential major development. The Agricultural Land Commission denied a request to remove 30 acres from the ALR, which is adjacent to Brooks High School, for the purpose of building a private English-language school operating by China-based Sino-Bright. Scott Randolph, manager of economic development for the city of Paul River, submitted the application on behalf of PRSC Land Developments to purchase the property. Of the commission came to look at the site? Uh, yeah, they did. Did you get a sense then about whether this application would be supported? Uh, they gave us no indication at that point in time and, and what was going to happen with the application. It was really a fact-finding mission and a chance for them to see the property in question. Right. That's, uh, they have to wait until they make a, an actual ruling on the file. Okay. Right. Okay. So. Were you surprised to receive this decision? Um, I was disappointed, I can say that. You know, uh, we uh, we felt that we had good support in the community, uh, not only from our partners such as uh, the Farmers Institute and Kwame Nation and the school district, but also council itself that had, uh, had supported the application uh, unanimously going forward. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, we we uh, we thought we'd made a good argument, uh, but uh, unfortunately the panel saw it saw it a different way. And what is the reaction that you've heard from Sino Bright? Um, we uh, we're in discussions with them on uh, options, and uh, all is not lost yet. Okay. But um, but at this point in time, we're uh, we're reviewing the options and uh, how we move forward. I know that this site um, was very specific in that it was proximate to uh, Brooks High School, but I'm curious, what else about this site was it that was so um, important to this project moving forward, knowing that there was uh, several hundred acres already taken out of the ALR in other places in town? What was it about this site that was so desirable? Well, it really was a close proximity to uh, to Brooks Secondary. Um, you know, uh, building the campus beside Brooks uh, provided for integration of students, mm-hmm. um, seamless integration uh, for students because they'll be taking their electives at Brooks, which obviously will help support those programs for going forward and expanding them. Um, so it was really important for uh, Sonnebright and the school district to have that campus right next door. Um, school district, of course, will be the operator of the campus if and when it's built. And uh, so obviously uh, it's important to them to, to have that integration. Okay. I'm assuming that maybe they're looking at other options around town. Um, can you give a hint of any other places that they might I be can't, looking? I can't comment on this issue at this point in time. Okay, I understand. So we, we will reveal when, we, when, when we're able to. Okay. And does this mean, too, that the um, incubator farm project that was proposed um, in conjunction with this pending approval, uh, will it still go forward, or is that up in the air? 
No, we're still we're still working on that project. We still have an interest in, in that property, and uh, again, uh, we'll uh, we'll make some decisions as a city. You know, when we get to that point. Right now, we're looking for the planning dollars to, to move forward on it, and uh, but the intention is still to to cite it there. Okay. I don't think there's anything else I can add at this point in time. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I wish I could, but uh, yeah. Well, thank you for your time. And the decision by the ALC is based on quote. In the absence of a detailed land use analysis of potential school sites in the Paul River area, the panel does not find the proposal to exclude 12, he excuse me, 12 hectares for institutional use as a compelling rationale to supersede the mandate of the ALC to preserve agricultural land. The panel finds that the proposal will be more appropriately located on lands outside of the ALR, unquote. So that's big news for Paul River. We'll see what happens news. next. Yes. Um, and otherwise, in city news, um, the city wants you to get involved in forming a budget. Peter, you might know about that. Me? I, you sound like... <laughs> <laughs> did you say that you did this already? I, I, I did, yes. So what do you do? What is this? Well, the, what this is is the City of Powell River's budget consultation page that is available. If you just go to the, the powellriver.ca or .coms, uh, the city's webpage, uh, there's, you'll see about halfway down the budget consultation tool, which gives you a chance to say, well, if I were in charge, what would I do? And you can take money, uh, add money to certain areas like fire services or the police or operational things or say potholes and streets is really your pet peeve and you want to increase their budget. You can do that with this tool, but then you have to take it away from somewhere else. And that's kind of what makes it interesting. And I think that's kind of the point of all this is to, to show that if, <laughs> there's only so much to go around, right? There's right. only so much revenue, and I, I would highly recommend that people give it a whirl. Okay. Well, it sounds like um, it went live this week, and the um, budget tool will be available until December 9th, and um, Chief Financial Officer of the city will present the first budget to council January 12th, and the results from the citizen budget will be available. So go online, put in your two cents. That's a pun. <laughs> and uh, go to paulriver.citizenbudget.com. It's only one cent for me. And um, one more quick news announcement. Um, you might know BC Ferries, 50% off sailings till December 18th. Um, that's all we'll say. Well, it, there are some Powell River routes. So. Yeah. But that is your CGMP News Bruce. Bruce for Friday, November 18th. I can't speak. You are listening to Powell River Community Radio on 90.1 FM and streaming online at cjmp.ca. We broadcast this episode on Saturdays at 11 a.m. And stay tuned for an interview with Eve Engler with the two in-studio in guests. You are listening to CJMP News on Powell River Community Radio, 90.1 FM, and streaming online at cjmp.ca. Live Fridays at noon and rebroadcast on Saturdays at 11 a.m. Your voice, your community. Powell River Villa are proud to support CGMP Radio during this soccer season. Villa play throughout the year at Timberlane Park. Check the visl.org for games, schedules, and more. So Powell River Villa is a new sponsor of CJMP News. The hometown soccer club is currently in eighth place in the second division. And they have a match coming up this weekend at Timberlane Field. Villa's playing the Fred Milne Park Rangers, who are currently one place below them in ninth. 
Uh, Vela has won one game this year out of six losses, so show up on Sunday. They don't always play at home, but when they do, it's good to get a hometown crowd uh, and show your support. Yay. Go <laughs> the, game, the game starts at 1.30 at Timberlane Field on Sunday. And to celebrate, we're giving away some Villa-sponsored merchandise to the first caller. Hello. So pick up the phone, caller. And our number is... 604-485-0088. So up for grabs are a pair of season tickets or a Villa branded scarf. And I've seen this scarf and it's pretty cool. It's like six feet long almost or five feet anyway. It's very soft. It's a limited edition. Yes, it is. So show support for your local soccer with this fan fashion item and give us a call right now. 604-485-0088. And what's the question though? The question. Yes, what we... year? Oh, <laughs> that would be <laughs> that would be helpful. The the skill testing question is, what year did the Villa team get started in Paul River? Okay, go. So call, call us, call us now. Four eight five zero zero eight eight. So now there's lots of things coming up this weekend. Uh, Crashing Into Things is playing with two other Victoria bands at the Red Lion Pub Friday evening, and we've got an excerpt from them here. It's called Rouge Elements. Yeah, there's a couple more things going on this weekend. The Dwight Hall Christmas Craft Fair, November 19th and 20th. It's from 10 to 4 and 10 to 3. That's a pretty good place to get your presents, I think. They're local and handmade. That's true. And they're original. And also, um, Frederick Room is speaking at the Evergreen Theatre. 7 p.m. about the important role of trees and carbon sequestration. Let's talk about trees. Well, let's talk trees and climate. And that's on Friday. That's correct? That's tonight. Tonight? Yeah. All right. Yeah, 7 to 9. Okay. Okay, so uh, moving on. According to UNESCO, 96% of crimes against freedom of expression affect local, commercial, or community media. And we're telling you this because the World Association of Community Radio Broadcasters wants uh, the public to know that they're increasing the pressure on government officials to stop impunity and and educate the public about the importance of uh, journalists and broadcasters' role in preserving safe working environments. And... So that's partly why we invited author Eve, Eve Engler to speak with CJMP in advance of his upcoming book launch at the Cranberry Senior Center Friday evening. And the book is about Canadian propaganda. And we talked to Eve Thursday afternoon as he was traveling on a bus from Victoria to Nanaimo. And he's speaking in Courtney this afternoon at, at the Laughing Oyster Bookstore, and he will be in Powell River this evening. Now here's Eve Engler speaking with our very own Carrie Swiggum.
Butler is a Montreal-based author, journalist, and activist who has written a number of books critical of Canadian foreign policy, including the Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy, Canada and Israel, Building Up Apartheid, The Ugly Canadian, Stephen Harper's Foreign Policy, and Canada and Africa, 300 Years of Aid and Exploitation. And his most recent book is entitled A Propaganda System, How Canada's Government, Corporations, Media, and Academia Sell War and Exploitation. Uh, that just came out in the fall of 2016. So, hi, Eve. How's it going? Pretty not bad. And so you're on a tour right now to promote your new book. Uh, we'll be speaking at the Cranberry Senior Center Friday, November 18th at 7 p.m. Today you were in Courtney, and Saturday you'll be speaking in Vancouver. Um, so thank you very much for taking time out to speak with us in between your book events. Um, I'd like to start off by asking what people should expect uh, when they come to the Cranberry Senior Center that evening. Like, what's been the general thrust of these conversations? They, they should expect a very dynamic speech about uh, the subject matter of my latest book. Um, I guess the, for others to decide if it's dynamic or not, but basically uh, um, I'm going to give a uh, talk that's an overview of uh, some of the material in, in my latest book, and, uh, and obviously there will be uh, you know, lots of time for back and forth and uh, questions, criticisms, comments, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, basically sort of a, uh, a, a lecture slash a book launch. Okay. And so this, I'm going to read an excerpt from the intro. Uh, this book details the obstacles Canadians face in understanding their country's place in global affairs. Most significant is the marketing. In the same way the Maple Leafs sell its product every year, the Department of National Defense, Veterans Affairs, Canadian Heritage, and Global Affairs Canada, uh, excuse me, spend hundreds of millions of dollars in public funds articulating a one-side version of Canada's foreign policy. And the corporate set spends tens of millions of dollars more. So kind of get the general thrust from that excerpt, I think. You say that also that people are surprised by statistics that you have. Can you share a few examples? Uh, well, I mean, people are, are surprised by uh, the fact that uh, the Canadian military is the largest PR organization in the country. Uh, they devote, uh, according to one 2010 uh, internal government document, they devote over $350 million to public public relations and uh, commemorating war that year. And uh, they had devoted about 661 staff members to, to that exercise. Um, but uh, but it actually goes a lot, lot beyond that. I mean, the military has a history department that has 50 employees. Uh, that's been around for a century. They've written many of the early books about uh, Canadian uh, warfare. Was uh, were written by official historians of the Canadian military. Those books had to be, uh, you know, brought to uh, the cabinet. To the defense minister had to sign off on the books. Um, so if you start if you start delving into it uh, on, the, on the, the military specifically, they have all kinds of arms. I mean, they have all kinds of arms length organizations, sort of think tanks that are are in one way or another um, tied to the military. They have their own history department. They have their own university, the Royal, Royal Military College in Kingston. Um, uh, they have a program, Security Defense Forum, that funds uh, university security studies programs. Uh, and they've been involved in setting up a lot of the university security studies programs. So, I mean, that's just the military. That's just one component is the military. Another other component is if you look at the funding of, uh, uh, historically, the Canadian International Development Agency, they've spent tens and tens of millions of dollars on, on, on promotion of their work. 
Um, uh, you look at uh, foreign affairs, uh, uh, other arms of the Canadian government, uh, foreign policy establishment have have set up a number of the organizations that um, that have been uh, influential in, in uh, uh, international affairs uh, kind of think tanks. Um, so so it's uh, basically it's uh, you know on one side there's a whole lot of resources from the arms of Canadian foreign policy. On the other side, the, you know, the peace movement, the international solidarity groups, um, there's almost no resources. So it's, uh, it's very much a one-sided uh, uh, vision of, of Canadian foreign policy that's, that's been articulated and continues to be articulated uh, in, in dominant uh, ideological institutions. Do you think the, uh, um, the government's version of our um, involvement in places overseas um, is, I mean, I feel like that's a big part of Canadian identity. Um, and that's how we find our identity, in a way. Uh, would you agree with that statement, that nation building and all that is, um, especially like under Harper, I know that he put a few million dollars toward commemorating the War of 1812, for example. Um, do you think that's a big part of Canadian identity? Well, I think a big part of Canadian identity is the sense that Canada is a benevolent force internationally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's absolutely unequivocally absurd. I mean, it's based upon nothing but propaganda. Uh, if you look at the history of Canadian foreign policy, this is a, a central question the book answers. Is If you look at the history of Canadian foreign policy, it has been uh, about advancing empire, historically the British, more recently the American, and advancing Canadian corporate interests abroad. Overwhelmingly, that is the driving force of Canadian foreign policy. Yet nine in ten Canadians think this country is a force for good in the world, and so the book is basically trying to answer the question of why the gap between the reality of Canadian foreign policy and the popular perception, and the gap is explained by you know a whole slew of uh, factors, but 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 in large part it's that there are uh, powerful institutions, be it at the level of official uh, arms of Canadian foreign policy. Also, at the level of the corporate sector, and you know, let's say, take the international mining industry. They spend significant resources. Canada's massive international mining industry spends significant resources in obscuring what they're doing around around the world, uh, uh, both at the level of direct PR and you know, media media representatives putting out press releases and the like, but also at the level of their whole corporate social responsibility. And then you find an inverse relationship between. Companies that are the most responsible for dubious activities abroad, uh, I'm thinking here specifically of a company like Barrick Gold, they're also at the cutting edge of corporate social, respons- co- corporate social responsibility initiatives. Basically, the objective of the, of, the, of the corporate social responsibility is to obscure all the destruction they're, uh, they're uh, causing, uh, causing abroad. Um, so so, so the, I think it is, I think it's important to, you know, an important part of Canadian identity is this idea of benevolent Canadian foreign policy, and it is just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not based in reality, and that's what my six previous books deal with. So they deal with different elements of Canadian foreign policy in different regions, different uh, political figures, um, and how uh, their policies were far, far from aligned with the rhetoric of of what they—you uh, know—they said they were doing or what they said Canada was doing. You don't shy away from the controversial topics, um, obviously, and they're critical of the Canadian government, Canadian foreign policy uh, specifically. Have you experienced any retaliation or suppression? Um, I, I, you know, you talk in the intro about um, 
the editorials you used to write that were accepted by places like the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, um, all of a sudden were interested in those anymore. Do you, is there more examples of, I guess, um, people trying to silence you um, in doing the work that you're doing, exposing these abuses that are um, pretty, sounds like pretty large and quite serious? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I detail many examples in the book and, and others that, that, I, that don't appear in the book, but, but I mean, based, the main way of suppression is just a exclusion from the dominant media channels, right? So I de- detail examples in the book about how um, I've submitted dozens and dozens of op-eds critical of different elements of Canadian foreign policy over the past decade or 12 years or so, and I've had, I believe, four of those published. And, uh, and so, so, but my, my experience writing on domestic issues, critical on domestic issues, is actually quite different, and I've had quite a bit better success publishing critical stuff on domestic issues. So my point in saying that is not that there isn't a bias in favor of power on domestic issues. There is. It's a corporate perspective. It's elite perspective that dominates in the, in the major media outlets on domestic issues. But that bias in favor of power is even more extreme on international issues. There's an incredibly narrow range of debate allowed in the dominant media, and I include the CBC here, uh, on uh, on uh, foreign policy issues, Canadian foreign policy specifically. Um, so you know, I have I have different examples of uh, of uh, you know, with the Huffington Post explicitly blocking uh, any reference to. Uh, to the responsibility to protect doctrine being invoked to justify Canada's role in overthrowing Haiti's elected government uh, in 2004. And their grounds for doing so was that the information I was presenting, though I provided links to the information based upon access to information documents, like internal Canadian government documents, they said that because this had not been published in a, in a mainstream media outlet, they couldn't publish it. So the editors taking the position that because it hadn't appeared in the corporate media, they can't, can't appear on Huffington Post. That, that's a, a recent example I, I ran into on, in some of my writing. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I'm excluded from, uh, you know, you don't, I won't be, in, I'm not invited to speak at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs or the Monk School of Global Affairs, preeminent uh, schools of international affairs in this country, because they very much, uh, they're very aligned with foreign affairs, they're very aligned with the corporate uh, uh, perspective. And uh, and you know there's the alternative perspective to what Canada's doing in the world is, is not is not welcome in in uh, those sort of leading uh, ideological uh, 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 university institutions in the country. So so you know it's a it's a uh, you know um, not nothing in any any important scope, but just the sort of uh, you're excluded from from the dominant uh, media and other ideological institutions. I wonder if um, over the last decade, I mean, there was the Bush administration, the Harper administration, there was a lot of, um, I think, criticism, if you will, <laughs> um, and uh, some pretty heavy, or excuse me, pretty uh, hard um, facts that things uh, were happening. People were saying one thing, something else was happening. Um, human rights abuses. Um, do you think that people heard about this stuff so much that their appetite for this kind of... Um, uh, I guess high level, um, not really in my domain, you know, not in my local area. Um, issues are not really. Do you think people can handle those still? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, that you know the reason why the 
the dominant media and and uh, you know foreign affairs don't uh, uh, just lay out uh, the facts about Canada's role in overthrowing Haiti's elected government and it leading to thousands of people being killed. And according to Lancet Medical Journal, 35,000 women were raped in the 22 months after the coup in Port-au-Prince, um, in large part, sort of as part of the coup process. Um, the fact, the reason those those facts are not laid out for the public in in the you know on you know reason that the CBC National is not uh, uh, laying that out is because. They understand. It's understood that if they did lay them out, <laughs> that the public would be uh, outraged about what Canada had done in Haiti. Uh, uh, so I don't think that the problem is not that people can't like handle the facts. The problem is is that the the facts uh, um, uh, will will elicit a backlash that the politicians and the and the and the, the power structure in society doesn't doesn't want uh, uh, to have uh, you know doesn't want that backlash because that would, that makes it more difficult. For them to con- continue pursuing the policies that they've been pursuing and, and generally want to pursue, they would prefer to have the public um, uh, believing this, this mythology of benevolent Canada because it basically lulls the public to sleep. When, when if you believe that Canadian officials usually do good abroad and they tr- they're always trying to do good abroad, you just you give them you give them a pass. You, you basically say, okay, you know, I, I trust that you're you're trying to do the best, and so people are not vigilant. That's the that's the um, the the real uh, uh, effect and uh, and desire of the mythology of Canada's benevolent force in the world is to ba- basically lull the population to to sleep on international affairs and just trust the trust the trust the decision makers despite the fact there's a long history of uh, that would suggest we should be incredibly mistrustful of their intentions. Um, so so I don't think the problem is that the the you know the there is no doubt a lot of apathy. I'm not. I'm not arguing that there's not a lot of apathy in, on political issues in general, and in particularly on foreign policy. There is, but I don't think that apathy is the is the is the primary problem. The primary problem is that the 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 public is is uh, is highly ignorant of of what's taking place, and that's because of a you know a, a series of, of institutional uh, uh, factors that I that I keep, that I document in the book. Can you talk about the increasing corporatization of the CBC and like, their role as a public broadcaster? Yeah, I mean, you know, in the book, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's just a matter of uh, increasing corporatization. Of course, there is, you know, increasing corporatization. There's certain ideologies that are being uh, that are being pushed through this CBC that that lead to uh, that dynamic. But if you go in the book, I go into some of the history of the ties between the um, uh, the foreign policy establishment. And the CBC. So right off the bat, the initial board of the CBC had two top military officials, had a had a leading foreign policy advisor on the board. Um, uh, there's a couple of masters and PhD theses that go through uh, the history of the close ties between the CBC and the military, and they actually the, the, the closeness was to the point where the CBC would actually uh, 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 produce reports. And pass them by military PR officials to see if they were okay to run uh, to run on the public broadcaster. Uh, what I'm, talk- I'm talking about into the into the 50s, even into the 60s. Uh, I don't believe that those relationships are as close today. But if you look at you know the board of the CBC, it's appointed by the government, and right now it's mostly uh, Harper appointees that are on the board. Uh, the budget of the CBC is, of course. Uh, 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 
dependent on the on the government. They don't have, uh, unlike maybe the BBC, which has a, uh, a you know, more um, uh, solidified funding mechanism. The, the CBC's uh, budget is highly dependent on the political will of the day, which obviously gives a lot of power uh, to uh, to the government, and that uh, makes you know the CBC sort of cautious in some ways. Uh, and then, of course, there's the question of, of you know advertising on on uh, on CBC television, which I think is a uh, uh, there's you know a, a history of, of uh, bending uh, bending uh, coverage to to the interests of, of advertisers. Uh, um, and, uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, the CBC is, is a, you know, at, at a very big picture level, I think it's, it's preferable to the, to, uh, uh, the corporate domination of, you know, of newspapers and most other, most other television and, and, uh, and radio. Um, but, uh, but it's far from, uh, a public broadcaster in the real sense of that term of, of, uh, you know, ref- reflecting, uh, um, the, you know, the majorities and, and, and being willing to you know challenge power and uh, and being sort of uh, in the hands of, uh, of popular participation. So I think that's all the questions I had for you. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say about the event or your book or this the work that you're doing? I, I'm 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 excited to. Uh, I've never done an event in Power River. I've done events in probably uh, I don't know 50, 50 plus communities across the country, and I've. So I'm looking forward to uh, coming to Powell River. And uh, years ago, I played uh, very briefly for the Powell River junior hockey team. So uh, okay. I have have been to Powell River, but uh, never done a never done an event. So I'm looking forward to it. Okay, great. Well, that's I'm speaking with Eve Engler, who will be uh, speaking Friday, November 18th at 7 p.m. and will answer questions like, "Why is Canadian fall, po- uh, excuse me foreign policy so terrible, and who makes those decisions?" Thanks to Eve for being here. Thanks for having me. And I also want to note that that segment was part of an audio series produced with the support from the Global Campaign Fund for Community Radio of the World Association of Community Radio Broadcasters and IFEX, International Freedom of, Exchange, uh, Freedom of Expression Exchange. So Eve Engler is a Montreal-based author, journalist, and activist. Hi, this is Mark Forsyth. You're listening to CJMP 90.1 FM, Powell River's listener-supported community radio station. CJMP is Powell River's source for all things local, news, music, events, and you. And I encourage you to become a sustaining member for as little as $5 per month. Visit cjmp.ca for details and help keep community radio alive and thriving in Powell River. So, Kevin, what is Radio Happy Hour? Radio Happy Hour, from what I've come to know it as, is a gathering at uh, CGMP uh, Tuesdays between 3 and 5 p.m. 3 to 5 p.m. Tuesday. Okay, good. And and what exactly happens there? So far today, I've learned uh, some of the technical side of radio, as well as meeting new people and understanding what the function is of radio here in Powell River. C'est magnifique. And the location is at uh, the station headquarters right here where we are right now excellent in the moment fantastic in the place november 16th is now officially louis riel day here in paul river and on that day this week city hall raised the metis flag on this 131st anniversary of riel's execution in 1885 
We're lucky to have in the studio with us today David Doyle, who is described as one of the most, most foremost experts on Louis Rail. And he's here representing the Paul River Métis Society. What can you tell us about the society? Actually, I'm here to represent the Friends of Louis Riel Society, which is a, uh, a partner society of the Powell River Métis Association. And we, the Friends, are a local group who have gathered together over the last year, seeking the exoneration of Louis Riel, Canada's Métis, Father of Confederation. Okay, I remember from my Canadian Studies class many, many years ago, uh, that we studied Louis Riel, and one thing that I remembered, and I wonder if it wasn't just an urban legend, was that after he'd been, you know, he was sought after by the law, that uh, yet he was elected by the people from Red River, that he went to Ottawa and actually signed, uh, signed the guest book. Is that really true? I mean, who was Louis Riel? Was he yeah, about? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's the critical question in Canadian history. Louis Riel's place in Canada's history has been uh, very much a question of debate. It has been a question that has needed an answer for over 140 years. So now we, as the Friends of Louis Riel, look to gather together the evidence to prove that Riel was a, a Canadian patriot and that Louis Riel fought for Canadian rights and values. So to talk about his uh, experience in the Parliament Maybe a little background would be appropriate. So we can remember that in Canada, 1867, we've had the formation of a new country, Canada. And with that, there was the idea of expanding to the west, expanding with the railway, the Canadian Pacific Railway, to expand from coast to coast. Now the challenge was that Canada did not own the northwest. The northwest was in the hands of the Hudson's Bay Company. And after Canada was formed, John A. Macdonald, Canada's first Prime Minister, sought to purchase the Northwest, the Hudson's Bay Company's Rupert's Land, which he did. And um, the, the question that came up at that time was that, yes, the Hudson's Bay Company sold the um, Northwest to Canada, but they didn't, it, much like today, the question was, do the people of the country have a right to say, right of say as to who is running the country? And so Louis Riel, just a young man of about 24, had come back from his education in Montreal. And as a Métis, who were the predominant peoples of the Northwest, he um, gathered together a group to confront the Canadians in regards to the sale of the Rupert's Land to Canada. And when Canada went to send a governor in, Louis Riel stopped them. He and his uh, troops stopped the Canadian governor at the border and said, no, we want to say in what's going to happen here. Now, I won't go into all the details of what happened in Manitoba, but it is quite amazing that a man of 24 years could lead both the Métis population as well as large portions of the English-speaking population to gather together to form a convention and that convention would come out with a list of rights which they sent to Ottawa to John A. Macdonald. Now there was um, conflict and Riel and his Métis cavalry were able to defeat the Canadians and uh, called for negotiations. Those negotiations led to the formation of the province of Manitoba. 
So once Canada and Manitoba had formed that um, contract, it was exceptional in that Aboriginal rights were uh, part and parcel of that whole contract. So the Manitoba Act actually provided for Riel and the Métis people to have the right to land, the right to their farms, their language, and their religion. And that led to Riel being elected to, as a member of parliament. But due to the fights that had been going on, he was unable to uh, take his seat. So as you're asking, yes, Louis Riel was elected three times to the Canadian Parliament, but was never allowed to take his seat. And, and then what? <laughs> okay, I feel like a, a kid sitting on the edge of his seat. Uh, and then what happened? I mean, I know about the Battle of Batoche. I, I've been to Batoche, and that's one of those kind of places that just has an effect on people uh, the energy there that, that I could feel. So he, what were the events that led up to the Battle of Batash and why is that significant? Oh, it is hugely significant. What happened is, is that when Riel was, uh, it was signing the um, book to be a member of parliament, no one knew it was Louis Riel, but as soon as they saw his name on that book, the police were called, the army was pulled out, the Orangemen of Ontario rose up and they tried to find Louis Riel and he had to go into exile. And he was formally exiled by the Canadian government and would spend 10 years in exile. In that period of time, as he said himself, he was hunted like an elk. The Canadian Orangemen, the uh, racist elements that uh, were opposed to the Métis that accused him of uh, crimes that happened in Manitoba, uh, were on his case. And basically, he's been called a madman at that point, or else he's been called uh, someone who had what we now call PTSD, post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder. And so he did spend a little time in um, the asylums of Quebec, but went back to the West when he was allowed to get out of there and he was called to Saskatchewan, just as he had been in Manitoba, to lead the struggle of the Métis, the settlers, and the Indians for uh, their rights and, and just for the uh, ability to make sure that the people had a say. So, yes, he went, and then um, there was a battle at uh, Duck Lake, at which time Louis Riel and the Métis once again defeated the Canadian forces, there was another battle at um, uh, Fishman's Creek. There again, once a time, Louis Riel led the struggle with uh, his military genius, Gabriel Dumont, the Prince of the Plains, which led to the big battle of Batoche, where the Métis stood for four days, 35 to 200 uh, men fighting against 800 Canadians. And they were defeated. Riel was taken to Regina, where he was tried by a colonial court, by a judge and jury of six men, not uh, the regular court that you'd have. So it was, it was where Louis Riel was taken and shortly after was hanged. That's pretty harsh justice. <laughs> Very so harsh justice. I, I understand that 100 years later, now, that he's still on the books as being that his conviction was never overturned, although Suzanne Tremblay from the Bloc Québécois tried to do that in 1994. But it Riel remains in Canadian history a traitor to Canada, guilty of the crime of high treason. 
Now, when we look through all of the background and all of the historical references and do our background's history, what we find is that this trial was fitted up by the government. It wasn't a true democratic trial. Riel was not allowed to speak at his trial until it was almost over. And so at that time, he led uh, a very sad and, and had a very critical and fatal ending. So what can we do today to see that his conviction is overturned? Well, we and as Friends of Louis Riel have been uh, petitioning. We have a petition on Facebook. Uh, you can get us at uh, Friends of Louis Riel on Facebook. We've uh, been writing to the Prime Minister, the uh, Minister of Indigenous Affairs, and uh, I'm very pleased to say the Minister of Indigenous Affairs uh, replied to our uh, petitions to have Riel exonerated, thanked us for our work, and uh, said, we will uh, take your ideas into consideration. Well, thank you very much for coming into the studio and speaking to us about so, uh, this huge figure from Canadian history. Oh, it's my pleasure. The Louis Riel remains Canada's indigenous Métis, father of confederation, and that means that he represents all that we would like to see, and even Prime Minister Trudeau has recognized the ideals and values of Louis Riel. Okay, thank you very much, David Doyle. My pleasure. Thank you.
that is Billy Childish and the Black Hands with the song Louis Riel. Uh, 1992 record, Sub Pop Records. I like that song. Me too. Now we've got another guest in the studio. His name is David Dumaresque. And um, he is helping organize a candlelight vigil against pipeline expansion on the coast. And he's going to be here to tell us a little bit more. Um, and he's actually here now. Um, but um, hi, David. Thanks for coming. Hi, thanks, Carrie. Nice to be here. Um, but uh, first, I, I would like to uh, acknowledge the traditional territory of the Tla'am and First Nation and uh, say I'm happy to be here. Right. Thank you. We're glad to have you here. Yeah. So the Liberal government is expected to make a decision about increasing tanker traffic and um, Kinder Morgan's existing pipeline and also an expansion of it. Um, can you just tell me about the basics of the event to start with, like sure. the who, what, where? Sure. So across Canada, this is being this uh, candlelight vigil is being organized by 350.org. Uh, there are about 25, 26. Last time I checked, uh, vigils already scheduled to go Monday, Monday evening, Monday afternoon. Um, it's just a somber, solemn, and strong show of protest that you know we are against pipelines in general or against tra tankers and. And for us here in Powell River, it's the the coast. I mean, our coastline is is so important to us, and and um, we don't have a lot of success. We don't have a lot of evidence of success in moving tanker traffic up and down the coast through these waters. Well, and then now we've got the loss of uh, the Comox um, Coast Guard station as well. So there really is no help around, um, as far as I'm aware, in terms of a some kind of accident going on. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the government has promised to increase uh, their response, marine response, so that's a good thing. Um, it, it still doesn't necessarily <laughs> rule, it doesn't rule out the, the worst of the worst. These tankers that we're talking about, they're th 33 stories long. Oh, that's huge. Um, and we're talking about increasing the, tr the traffic, the Kinder Morgan traffic into Vancouver area the harbor uh, from several a day to many 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 times more I don't want to give you the exact number because it might just make us all <coughs> upset mm -hmm. really upset like well and I don't have the exact number no so. I mean it's 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 certainly sad knowing the con the um, excuse me the consequences of a tanker going down in this area um, as we know, what just recently happened up by um, Bella Bella, 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 Bella. Bella. Yeah. yes, um, which I mean, they were just going into their season of harvesting clams and oysters, and um, I'm, I'm not even sure if it's still cleaned up. I you know, well, there's there are several fisheries. I understand the uh, food fisheries of theirs that are that are gone as a result of that. Well, here's a bit of good news. It's not related to Kinder Morgan, but um, a press release from Greenpeace Thursday says that um, the largest bank in Norway. DNB yeah. uh, pulled out of the, uh, excuse me, the Dakota Access Pipeline um, from the result of 120,000 signatures who were protesting their involvement. Um, so they pulled their finances and are urging other banks to do the same. Fantastic! That's Standing Rock, I guess. Mm -hmm. eh? Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. They were a, they were an investor, um, so that's a huge that's a huge step for yeah. sure. And it goes to show that public support actually does go a long way sometimes. 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 A lot of the time, actually. <laughs> yeah, we have to let our these organizations know. We have to let our banks know, our schools know, um, our 
uh, our CPP, our pension fund, uh, we're invested in oil. So we have to let, let our leaders know that we don't want that. Yeah. But personally, what motivates you to be involved in something like this? Well, uh, I'm even more so of, uh, concerned now. I have a two-year-old um, settling down. I'm f no longer single and you know, kind of living from day to day. I'm looking far, far into the future. Um, so, it's, and I, I grew up in Vancouver. I was born and raised there. I, I love swimming in the, in the ocean. It just the, uh, I go out and fish or just enjoying this beautiful, beautiful country. But of course, we're talking about the increase of climate change. Uh, we have to keep the oil in the ground. We have to make a transition away from oil to alternative energies. I don't say go, go cold turkey. We have to make a transition from it. I mean, we make pharmaceuticals from oil. I mean, we need to be able to use oil, but we're polluting, poisoning our atmosphere, heating up our planet, and killing off thousands and thousands of species. It's, uh, it's making the planet unlivable. Well, I really appreciate you coming in today. Yeah, well, Thank you for um, spreading the news. And can you tell us again what the date and time is? Sure. So 7 p.m. on the Rotarian Bandstand at Willingdon Park, November 21st. And that's Monday. That's Monday. Uh, they have a URL if we could read it out. Sure. Because um, uh, it would be great if people RSVP'd, and you can do that at, the, uh, at this uh, URL. So it is... Uh, oh, and should people bring a candle with them? Oh, yes, bring a candle. Um, if you have an electric candle at home, that would be great because there's weather. But otherwise, you know, put it in a cup or something, protect it from the wind. We'll, we'll bring some too. So it's, uh, the URL is actact350.org slash event slash km for Kinder Morgan dash v oh sorry dash vigils v-i-g-i-l-s slash one three three nine nine oh that's a long <laughs> url sort of, but we'll <laughs> sure. put it on our website hey, great so thanks facebook page <laughs> thanks guys so thanks very much for coming in all right terrific we're done yep we're done okay. and because we're now going to coastal color which is our weekly uh roundup of arts events and uh produced by rabbit eye so let's take a look at what's happening in the arts this week Hi, this is Mark Forsyth. You're listening to CJMP 90.1 FM, Powell River's listener-supported community radio station. CJMP is Powell River. Welcome back to Coastal Color, the November 18th edition for CJMP News. I'm Rabbit Eye, Powell Rivers Arts News for this week and a little bit beyond. November is our sustaining membership drive at CJMP. Visit cjmp.ca slash sustain for details. For as little as $10 a month, you can become a sustaining member. We also remind you that CJMP has an annual general meeting coming up on Thursday, November 24th at 7 p.m. at the Community Resource Center, 4752 Joyce Avenue. The film Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them in 3D is happening on Friday, November 18th to Thursday, November 24th 
4th at the Patricia Theatre, 7 p.m. nightly. There's a performance of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol on Saturday, November 19th at 2 p.m. It's $10. It happens at the Faith Lutheran Church, 4811 Ontario Avenue in Powell River. Victorian refreshments available from $5 to $20. Proceeds support the food cupboard. Prizes awarded for best Victorian costumes as well. There's an annual craft fair at Dwight Hall called Raincoast Christmas Fair on Saturday and Sunday, November 19th and 20th. The Saturday times are 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Sunday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Again, it's at Dwight Hall, which is at 6274 Walnut Street at Ash Avenue in Townside. The Order of Eastern Star Christmas Bazaar and Luncheon happens on Saturday, November 19th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the United Church Trinity Hall, 6932 Crofton Street. This features baking, preserves, crafts, food hamper, and a door prize. Lang Bay Hall Society Christmas Craft Fair happens on Saturday, November 19th and Sunday, the 20th from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day at Lang Bay Hall, which is 11090 Highway 101. The second annual 8x8 Anonymous Art Show, which is a fundraiser to buy books for the New Public Library, happens on Saturday, November 19th. There's a sneak preview at 6 p.m. Admission to that is $10, and you have to be a member of Friends of the Library to attend that part. It is open to all at 7 p.m. This happens at 32 Lakes Cafe in Townsite, the old Bank of Montreal building. All works are priced at $88, and it is first come, first served. There'll be a cash bar and other treats as well. The show Invasion of the Victorians with three Victoria BC bands, Black Valley Gospel crashing into things, and High Arctic playing on Saturday, November 19th at 8.30pm at the Red Line Pub. Entry is $10. The Artique Annual Winter Salon with guest artists, music refreshments, and food bank donations happens on Thursday, November 24th from 6 to 9pm at Artique, which is 4722 Marine Avenue. The play Those Crazy Ladies in the House on the Corner happens on Thursday, November 24th and Friday, November 25th, as well as Saturday, November 26th at 6.30pm each evening at the Texeda Gillies Bay Community Hall. The Rock Island Players present this show. It ends early so that Powell River Rights can also take the ferry back for 9pm. Powell River Fine Arts Association annual Christmas sale happens on Friday, November 25th from 2 to 8pm and Saturday, November 26th from 10am to 3pm at Timberlane, which is across from Books High School track. There's a celebration of cultural diversity happening on Saturday, November 26th from 10am to 3pm. It is free to attend at the Recreation Complex in Powell River. There will be food, fun, people, culture. If you'd like to volunteer or display your heritage, call Coco 604-414-3630. The Powell River Community Band has a circus theme with, with Roy Carson directing Saturday, November 26th, 2 p.m. Tickets are by donation and it happens at the Max Cameron Theater at Brooks High School. The Powell River Poetry Slam happens on Saturday, November 26th from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Cranberry Community Hall, 6828 Cranberry Street. Doors open at 6.30 p.m. The event is actually 7 to 9 p.m. There's a $5 suggested donation. Full details on PRPL's events calendar at prpl.ca slash event. There's a benefit film screening Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory on Sunday, November 27th at 3 p.m. Admission is by donation and the donations go to the Powell River Film Festival. This happens at the Patricia Theatre in Townsite. Storyteller Ross Rosen with music by Justin Reese Thursday, December 1st at 7 p.m. at Westview Church. There's a needle felting workshop on Thursday, December 1st from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at the Powell River Public Library. Learn the basics during this one and a half hour demonstration and hands-on workshop at the library and go home with your own little felted object. Space is limited. Call the library 604-485-4796 to reserve. A workshop called The Gift of the Letterpress is happening on two separate days. There are two separate groups, Friday, December 2nd and Saturday, December 3rd from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. each day. The location is in Cranberry to be announced. There is limited space. Register at the library or call 604-485-8664 or email mmerlino at powriverlibrary.ca. There's a Christmas concert in Wasail on Friday, December 2nd at 7.30 p.m. at the Evergreen Theatre at the Recreation Complex. There's an International Day of Persons 
Musicians with Disabilities Film Festival happening on Saturday, December 3rd at 2.30 p.m. It's $5. This happens at the Gene Pike Center for Inclusion at 7055 Alberni Street. In terms of live theater, there's a show called Oh Christmas Tea with award-winning comedy duo James and Jamesy from the UK. Tuesday, December 6th is the date, 7.30 p.m. Buy your tickets at jamesandjamesy.com. Carols by Candlelight happen on Friday and Saturday, December 9th and 10th at Dwight Hall. The Academy of Music has tickets. Life drawing sessions happen every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the Apollo River Academy of Music. It's $10. It's drop-in. If you'd like to be a model, they pay $40 for two hours. Call 604-483-8994 or email royart at telus.net. The Malaspina Art Society's group show is ongoing until December 21st at the Vancouver Island University Powell River Campus during open hours. There's a live stage play, Robin Hood and the Babes in the Woods, December 9th, 10th, 11th, and 16th, 17th, and 18th. These all happen at the Recreation Complex Evergreen Theatre, brought to you by Theatre Now. There's a call for artists. Expose yourself as an erotically themed, multidisciplinary art exhibition. The deadline for a visual art and digital gallery submission is Saturday, January 21st, 2017, at 11.59pm. You can email iExhibition at gmail.com, and I'll spell that out, E-Y-E-X-H-I-B-I-T-I-O-N at gmail.com. The next Expose Yourself event itself happens March 17th to 19th, 2017. And that is all for this week's Coastal Color. We'll see you next week. I am Radharai, and back to CJMP News. And that was your arts news for the week. If you missed part of the segment, you can always go to our website to hear the whole thing. While you're there, you might notice that CJMP is doing a month-long sustaining membership drive. We currently have 40 members, but basically we need... How many, carry to be self-sufficient? 200 is what we're looking for. 200, that's our goal. So right now we operate on kind of a grant project basis, uh, which is, you know, once we get the Mm -hmm. grant and we've got staff here, it's great, but it's not sustainable. So we're asking public to help us be sustainable. Right, and we're not only asking people to give, we also give, and we're trying to give away a scarf right now. That's true. (laughs) And no one has called in. No. So if you know or might have a computer handy where you can Google this, um, what year did Paul River Villa team start? Get started, yes. In Paul River. So if you know, give us a call. We have uh, season tickets or a scarf to give or away, which is highly coveted scarf I, in the drawer that it was in. Uh, I saw some on eBay just a few minutes ago for 300 bucks. <laughs> Peter is selling the <laughs> scarf right now. All right. So we're almost at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. I want to say thank you to everyone who contributed to this episode, including Rabbit Eye, Mel Edgar, Yanni Weiss, and Peter Harvey, including our guests that came in today. It's always fun to have live That's guests. Great. And CJMP News is on every Friday from noon till 1 p.m. and rebroadcast Saturdays at 11 a.m. The show can also be heard as a podcast along with all of CJMP's live shows at cjmponline.ca slash podcasting. We're also on iTunes. Just search for CJMP News and subscribe. And up next on the Friday Live lineup is Rabbit Eye and 1,000 Tiny Magnets. If today is Saturday, then stay tuned for Out of the Woods. Have a good week. Goodbye. Blossoms fail to bloom in season. Promise not to stay too long.